four college students found dead. A murderer remaining at large. I am shook. Unless you've been living under a rock, I'm sure you've heard of the University of Idaho murder. They just want to get that fame reputation. So you have this period of time where the police are doing their investigation. Meanwhile, TikTok is running rampant with every theory, every possible speculation about the case. How are people supposed to know what is the truth and what's not? Just let the police do their job. You guys are not detectives. We have received threats and harassment. We didn't deserve that. Santa was just an incredible person. They love life. They live life to the fullest, both of them. The real question for me is gonna be, what's his defense? Why did you do it? There's a funny picture, I guess, of me and him at one of my birthday parties. It's just like the perfect angle. I'm just going to smooch his <laughs> cheek and it just looks so goofy. We were probably like 21, 22, something like that. He was the most generous person I've ever met. He was just very funny. We had a lot of fun together. I miss him and I'm gonna miss him every day for the rest of my life. Darren Duncan was in the middle of mourning his best friend, Brent Kopaka, when he first saw it. Posts online falsely claiming Kopaka was somehow tied to the deaths of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. He was a soldier who went over there to fight for us, and now I gotta defend him after he died. He's not here to talk about it or defend himself. None of it was true, but as a town reeled in its grief, the community also was hit by a storm of misinformation and lies that would make healing seem impossible. For anyone intrigued by the Idaho murders, there's been plenty of content out there over the last six months. YouTube, Reddit, TikTok, you name it. Okay, so let's talk about the Brian Coburger situation. There has been so much going on online about this case. This case has absolutely consumed the nation's attention. The most requested case I've ever seen. On November 13th, 2022, four students, Kaylee Gonzalez, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin were stabbed to death in the middle of the night at their off-campus home at the University of Idaho. And overnight, the quiet, idyllic college town turned into this. There are new images tonight of two of the victims at a food truck just before they died. We cannot say that there's no threat to the community. And as we have stated, please stay vigilant. I know we won't be defined by tragedy, but how we respond to it. First, the news cameras arrived. We specifically wanted to come here at night to see what the killer saw. I am shook. Then when there was no arrest for several weeks, some web sleuths decided to take the investigation into their own hands. I just want to give a quick and crazy update that's happening. This is what I think happened in Idaho murders. All four of them so. had been stabbed. So you have this period of time where the police are doing their investigation, working through the evidence and trying to find and apprehend the perpetrator. And meanwhile, 
TikTok is running rampant with every theory, every possible speculation about the case. And this is creating a lot of chaos within the community. At this point, an arrest has been made. Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. The former criminology student at nearby Washington State University was just arraigned. His trial is set to begin in October. This is a gruesome, personal, sometimes passionate murder of four people. So many questions still remain. Koberger's parents were reportedly just subpoenaed in Pennsylvania, but we don't really know why. It's unclear if this was tied to Idaho or a different case. With any grand jury, it's secretive. We're not gonna know the why unless or until someone is indicted. These issues bring up a lot of larger conversations too. What happens to the people who were wrongly accused of the crime by those online sleuths? And what does it say about how our society obsesses over and treats true crime cases? And for so many in the Moscow community, the national online response to the murders clouded what really should be at the center of the story, the lives lost. They loved life. They lived life to the fullest, both of them. They did so much and had gone so many places and done so many things in those 21 years. Kaylee Gonzalez and Maddie Mogan were both seniors and longtime best friends. It was apparent from just one look at their social media. Kaylee, she was like the protector. If we needed honestly anything, she would just do it. I remember I had like a professor I was having a hard time with. She's like, Katie, sit down. I'll call the dean for you. I'll draft the email. <laughs> we'll figure it out. She was in everyone's corner. She was the voice for people who didn't have the voice. My girl wasn't scared to spark up a conversation with anybody who looked friendly. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, Maddie used to say, Kaylee knows everyone. If I had one or two words to describe Maddie May, it would be just an angel. She just made me proud. When I would meet somebody, Maddie was the first thing I would tell someone about. I'd say, oh, I have this daughter, and she's so smart and beautiful and funny, and she's just uh, the thing that makes me happiest in, in life. One of their other roommates, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, was also killed that night, alongside her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin. Zana was just an incredible person. I've never met someone like Zana before, ever. She opened her arms wide and let me in her life the day I met her. When she met Ethan, I remember her telling me, hey, I have got a little crush on Ethan. And he was just such a fun person to be around. Ethan was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity and loved sports. He was also a triplet. His brother and sister were both students at the university. My first impression of Ethan was he's just this huge dude that you wouldn't really approach, but as soon as you really got to know him, you realized that he's like one big teddy bear. Our mutual love for country music is really what brought us together. From family members to classmates to community members, most were in some way affected by the senseless murders. 
Todd Martin is a business school instructor who taught Maddie Cayley and Zana a few semesters before their deaths. It was initially hard to process all of it or any of it, but to, you know, but then to, to know that it was our students in the college and the, and the connections to, the, to that, it was tough. But he says the way the community came together in the wake of the tragedy speaks volumes about Moscow. When you come to the University of Idaho, you become part of the family. And we all, we all take that very seriously. Hadia Darik, Ben DeWitt, and Daniel Ramirez still vividly remember that November day, finding out their classmates had been killed. And in the days that followed, they covered the story for their school paper, The Argonaut. I found out the day it happened because I'm good friends with Zana's sister. We didn't know what happened yet, and we just kind of followed the story throughout the day, and as we found out more information and or rumors, it started to become more of like a dire situation where things weren't feeling right, and it, it just felt like something was really off. Shock and fear rippled through the campus, but these reporters knew they had a responsibility to their community and the truth. We weren't necessarily thinking or looking at the homicides as students, but as reporters. We just understood we had a sense of duty for, like, to our community where we had to cover it, we had to get the proper information out, especially when we saw the misinformation and the rumors. We really didn't feel the impact of it till very later on. And I feel like a lot of it was because of that sense of duty and the sense of just wanting to tell everyone what really happened. And it's just like, what? Because look, I have John's name on here. But as they reported on the details of the case, they also noticed the flood of rumors and allegations circling online. I was seeing a lot of like the conspiracy theories like firsthand in my inbox on my phone. And the majority of it, I think people just have this sick fascination with true crime. Um, I think we all, in a sense, do. I feel like it's a lot of it's like pride and just wanting to be the first person to crack this case. It's not really that they give a crap of like what happened in the community. They just want to get that fame reputation. When I went to the arraignment, this TikTok lady, um, she was talked to you know, sternly by the uh, police officers there like twice because she kept trying to record inside the courthouse. The conspiracies and false allegations left their mark on the town. More often than not, they can clog up the process of investigating. When you're looking for tips and facts about a case, getting 10 can be helpful. Getting 1,000 when 999 of them are just random people saying, I think this, I thought that, the police have to go through each and every one of them, and so it can delay an investigation. Also, if these internet sleuths are pointing at the wrong person, just the accusation alone of being involved in a quadruple murder of university students can damage a person's reputation beyond repair. It's an interesting question to ask people. How many people do you personally know who are accused of being the murderer? I know two. Yeah, two. <laughs> I mean, our old like life editor, he was accused of being the murderer, and it was just like, what was the evidence? He knew the people, he was like friends with the people, and he drove a Hyundai Elantra. 
an important note here. During the investigation, police asked the public to look for a white Hyundai Elantra after it was spotted in this surveillance footage the night of the killings. That's one of the clues that ultimately led them to Koberger. And it's like anybody with a white car is automatically like presumed like being the murderer. Remember on like the Moscow Murders subreddit, uh, someone took like a screenshot from like 2017 of my street where there's a white Hyundai Elantra parked on the side of the road. And it's like, this is where the murderer parked. And it's like, how old is this screenshot? <laughs> there were so many fingers pointed at so many people. And it was equally harmful where their full names were being put out on social media. There are other people in our community who had interactions with social media sleuths. You know, those social media people were relentless in their pursuit of, of I, you know, their 30 seconds of glory, I guess, right? I mean, I don't know why else you'd be doing that um, and, and commercializing the tragedy that we had here. And I got something else that What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. In full discretion, that is my second beer already. But there were many people across the country who did just that. We've been about to kick this off. We have about 135 people waiting on us already. Last time we had 18, 1900 people in the live chat. It's a Drunk Turkey Show, mother trucker! Daniel J and his two friends dreamed up the idea for the Drunk Turkey YouTube show and podcast over late night talks and a lot of beers. The three friends asked we don't use their last names due to safety concerns. So then where did the concept come from? Because it does sound like there were a couple of different ideas floating around. Our initial goal was conspiracies, uh, UFOs, aliens, ghosts, things of that nature. And just, just try to have a good conversation at the end of the day. I think Aliens have probably been among us for the longest time, personally, I think. Daniel R., who goes by Big Blue, is one of the co-hosts and says it took a while for the show to gain traction. When did you guys really start to see subscribers change? Like the amount of people that are watching you from the beginning, then jumping all of a sudden? I think it was, after, it was for sure when we started doing the Idaho case. And it was probably about a month afterwards it started picking up. Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Murder Mystery Show. Today, we're trying to track down a potential suspect. The team has recorded over 100 episodes on the so-called King Road murders to date. After just one year, the show has more than 3 million views on YouTube, and they make money off of it from sponsorship and selling merch. When it comes to everyday people creating true crime content, Certainly part of it is a genuine interest in trying to get stories out there. I think everyday people are also interested in trying to tell stories that will get likes and will get follows and will grow their podcast. We're talking about platforms that are incentivized, right? I mean, if you generate true crime content that goes viral, you are inherently rewarded by the platform when that happens. What do you think it was about that case in particular that drew people in? I mean, here are two three guys, you know, from the Del Rio area, San Antonio area, South Texas. I mean, you guys are talking about something that's happening in another state. I think it was the interactions that we would have with each other about the mystery. We had all have our theories of theorizing of how he got in or, 
what happened before we found out who it was. So then do you consider you got yourselves like investigators, sleuths? I mean, how then would you, because, because that's important. It does sound like the facts are important. I mean, I, I don't consider myself a sleuth because I think to me a sleuth is somebody that thrives on negativity. Mm. And we don't thrive on negativity. Do you think that this show is helping people or harming people? I don't know if it's doing either. Our goal isn't to go out there and try to solve the case and help the police department and solve it. We're just commentating on our opinions on what is out there. Daniel Jay is a former police officer, but with Drunk Turkey, he says he's just a regular guy. But doesn't it kind of muddy the water, you know, when you have so many people that are not directly involved in the investigation of the case, giving all sorts of information, putting it all out on the internet. How are people supposed to know what is the truth and what's not? No, I, I, I understand that aspect of it. You know, you just gotta be mindful about who you're watching at the end of the day. You know, I can't control, you know, who our viewers are watching outside of us. And we like conspiracies as well, but when it comes to like true life and true crime and stuff, we try to stay fact-based for the most part. Like, is there speculation and opinions? Yes, it's ours. The three friends say they don't have any bad intentions and are careful about the sourcing they use. They sometimes add disclaimers. This is theoretical and our opinions only and fictional. Your discretion is advised. But still, they've amplified a number of false allegations tied to the murders of the four students by just having various guests and listeners call into their show. In one episode, a woman called in and falsely claimed 36-year-old Purple Heart recipient Brent Kopaka was tied to the crime. Is there any regret in how that one call was handled? No, because, you know, the only thing, we let the person talk and we, under, you know, we let everybody understand that, you know, everybody has an opinion. You know, it's, it, it is what it is. Everybody has an opinion and that wasn't ours. One of Brent's close friends has said that he felt like that podcast ruined his friend's legacy. You know, this is a person who served in the military. When you hear that, how does that make you feel? I mean, I, I feel pretty bad that, but I don't think it ruined his legacy. I mean, at that time we weren't even that big to where everybody in the world heard it. I mean, if it's personal, to him, I apologize, you know, we weren't even, we don't even still to day like bring out his name and say, hey, we think it's him because we, I, we never had anything to tie him to there. As far as that podcast goes, I think they're just another people who are on social media trying to get views by using current news, talking about things that happen and then being sleuths. I've never watched their show. Mm -hmm but I know how people on the internet are and the way they use TikToks and Reddits and YouTube channels and things, it's all about views. Otherwise, why would you even do it? Darren Duncan had been friends with Brent Kopaka since high school, 22 years. He says before Kopaka's death, they spoke on the phone every day. We all met pretty much the same time and yeah. all over the same reason because we all listened to heavy metal. This is a video he sent my daughter. I just wanted to call and say thank you for that awesome message. I miss you so much, and I, I love all you guys, and I can't wait to see you soon. He was devastated to see Kopaka's name falsely tied to the crime weeks after he died. 
and it went far beyond the Drunk Turkey show. It was on Facebook, Reddit, and a lot of other platforms. A friend contacted me and was like, you should see what they're saying about Brent. So I would go on Reddit and it was just people saying that he was involved with the Idaho Four slayings and that him and Koberger were friends and that he was a ranger in the army. Just all this stuff that was not true at all. And it's all said by people who don't know him, never even met him. Did you I, have interactions with people? I did. I totally did. I started to defend him immediately because I was, I was shocked and I was mad. I was really mad and I, I should have let it go and let all these people just talk and run themselves into the ground. But I figured, well, maybe I can put a stop to it. But then I realized I'm just one person against all these people on the internet. I've got a few of people messaging me and telling me that I need to come forward about my friend and that uh, the FBI is gonna come for me and I need to take my Facebook page down and uh, it's just crazy. Duncan is a big horror movie junkie. It's one of the things that he and Kopaka bonded over. I have some Michael Myers masks, Freddy Krueger glove that is autographed by Robert England. All these masks are autographed. But it's also one of the reasons that people on Facebook, Reddit, and YouTube tied him to the Idaho murders. How did that happen? They found me on Facebook. I didn't realize that my Facebook account was public and that just like anybody can just go on it and see. And I would just make posts about Brent, like how I missed them and loved them and having a beer for you, things like that. Listening to the songs reminds me of you, just dumb stuff. And people saw the background. People saw the, the room that you're sitting in where I make social media posts. They and, saw this back here? Right, and, and then insinuated. immediately think I'm a murderer or I'm into that kind of thing. But what I'm into is fake, you know? It's all make-believe and it's just movies. It has nothing to do with real life murder, but people just seen those things and they're putting pieces together that don't fit and they're just forcing them in there. What actually happened to Brent Kopaka was tragic. Duncan says it was tough for him to come to terms with. According to investigators, back on December 15th, officers responded to Kopaka's Washington home after reports that he had threatened his roommates the home just miles away from the King Road crime scene. He barricaded himself for hours, at one point firing a gun. Police say they fired back and shot Kopaka. Our plans to be two old grumpy men on a porch listening to heavy metal drinking beer is gone. That's not gonna happen. We're not gonna be, you know, 70 someday and talking about, dude, we made it. That got taken away from me. In Kopaka's obituary, his family said, he had fought a courageous battle against PTSD for years after returning home from serving in Afghanistan. We reached out to the family but did not hear back. When he did come home, was he the Brent that you knew and grew up with? He was more standoffish, he was more quiet, and um, he became really private out of nowhere. He liked to move around a lot and he had terrible crowd anxiety. Duncan says mourning Kopaka while also defending his legacy has been painful. I mean, I'd do anything for him and I'd do anything to bring him back, but that's why I want to talk to, to people like you to, to set that record straight because I don't want slews talking about him anymore. Without giving credence to any particular show or article for that matter, do you have a message for those people that continue to bring up Brent's name? You guys are not detectives. Leave people alone. Let, let the professionals do it and just shut your mouth. Quit talking about my friend Brent.
because you don't know him, let him rest, let his family heal, leave us the hell alone. I think the unfortunate reality of the situation with Idaho is once you are named as a suspect, you've gone viral. And it's very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. And in terms of clearing your name, you have to rely on the authorities clearing your name, perhaps legal lawsuits going after the person who defamed you. That's what University of Idaho professor Rebecca Schofield did after a self-proclaimed psychic on TikTok claimed Schofield participated in the murders. I did a reading. What came out in Rebecca Schofield's reading was how she implemented it. Schofield sued Ashley Gillard for two counts of defamation asking for damages. The baseless, false story wreaking havoc on her life, Schofield's attorney telling ABC News in part, the untrue statements create safety issues for the professor and her family. They also further compound the trauma that the families of the victims are experiencing and undermine law enforcement efforts. Professor Schofield twice sent cease and desist letters to Miss Gillard, but Miss Gillard has continued to make false statements TikTok user Ashley Gillard responded to the suit by denying the allegations and countersuing Schofield and her attorneys for defamation and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Gillard is still making content on TikTok about the professor. We reached out to TikTok and YouTube about their efforts to address misinformation, but they did not provide any comment. Social media platforms would not be held liable for someone saying, X, Y, and Z committed a crime, or they believe based on this zoomed in portion of a video that this must be the culprit, because they're not the ones publishing the information. They're merely just the platform for which other people speak. Social media companies, at their discretion, they can remove content, right? Or they can flag content that is deemed to be inaccurate or an example of misinformation. But you know, we still don't necessarily know how all of these decisions are made in a lot of these social media companies. The university called the accusations against Schofield one of the worst they've seen. Police even put out their own statement saying they did not believe that Schofield was involved in the crime. The Moscow police continuously push back against the false allegations throughout the investigation. They even added a rumor control section to their website. A lot of people have expressed their desire to help and the best thing that most of people can do to help is to stop with any kind of rumors and just seek official information that comes out of the Moscow Police Department. Warning those spreading misinformation that anyone engaging in threats or harassment, whether in person, online, or otherwise, needs to understand that they could be subjecting themselves to criminal charges. But the phenomenon goes far beyond the Idaho murders. In recent years, true crime has become a whole industry. We now live in an age of true crime on demand. We essentially have true crime at our fingertips. You have podcasts, you have streaming documentaries, you now have, you know, YouTube and TikTok accounts that are generating true crime. Sometimes these self-proclaimed amateur detectives can help crack the case, like when Gabby Petito went missing in 2021. We saw a video that was uploaded to YouTube by someone who had seen the van in Wyoming, and this in turn helped the police narrow the scope of their search. Travel blogger Jen Bethune says she was one of the people who tipped off the FBI. When we found the footage, I'm like, please, please keep recording, please keep recording. And all of a sudden we see this white speck 
getting closer and closer and closer. We knew it was her van as soon as the footage passed by it. And back in 2009, a group of amateur detectives on the online forum Web Sleuths took interest in the missing person case of Abraham Shakespeare, a Florida man who went missing after winning the lottery. The bloggers were able to track down financial records and purchase agreements of a suspect, aiding the detectives in securing evidence and building a case. In the Idaho case, Many online sleuths and some members of the community were criticizing the police for lack of information. But we now know during that time, police were gathering a ton of evidence. We have a search warrant for the building. Police department search warrant. Surveillance videos, cell phone tracking data, DNA, and putting it all together. We were able to peer into this crime scene as if we were walking through it for the first time and monitoring Koberger, who they would ultimately arrest for the brutal murders in December. When they had a, a suspect in custody, you know, like, I was so happy that I didn't have to drag a couch in front of my door and I could put my guns back in the safe. On May 22nd, at his arraignment, Koberger stood silent. You want to be standing silent? Because uh, Mr. Koberger is standing silent, uh, I'm going to enter not guilty pleas on each charge. There's no real rhyme or reason for you to stand silent. If you truly believe yourself to be not guilty, then say it. If you want to take a plea, then say it. But standing silent doesn't stop the proceedings. It, it doesn't move it forward. But according to reports, he has said through his lawyers he expects to be exonerated. The real question for me is going to be, what's his defense? And. I would expect that as the prosecution tries to put all the pieces together, the defense will try and attack each piece separately. Attack the cell phone data, attack the car evidence, attack the DNA evidence. As the case currently stands, the highest that Brian Koberger could get is life in prison without the possibility of parole. However, the prosecution has 60 days from the day of his arraignment, which ends somewhere around the end of July, to ask for the death penalty. What makes the most sense is that they're waiting for July 1st. That is when new legislation from the governor came through to say that effectively of July 1st, a firing squad can be used for the death penalty if certain drugs are not available to administer as they would typically use for the death penalty. Meanwhile, this is where Koberger is being held behind bars, a small county jail that isn't used to this level of attention. Just miles from here, the community continues to mourn as they wait for Koberger to face trial in October. For now, at least, the cameras have left Moscow, Idaho leaving residents and family members with room to process the last six months and the next. Two young ladies, students of mine, came up and, and we had a little conversation um, and that and, and I was just asking them how they were feeling and, and everything. And if one thing that has resonated, still resonates with me, is that one of them said, absolutely, I feel safe in Moscow, right? Moscow is still a very safe community. It's simply just not immune. And, and she's absolutely right. I want Maddie to be remembered as just full of love and just smart and a great friend and hardworking and just, I just hope that she knows that 
I'm just so proud, so proud of her and everything that she did and so proud to, to have had her in my life. You know, for all of us, our lives just get turned over and the real answer is that to me, it never does get better. You don't, you can't heal from somebody as important and as beautiful in your life as these individuals were. You just, you just can't recover from it. You know, they are not breathing. They are not here. They are gone off of this earth forever. I do believe that we will see them again. Looking back is um, as things were developing, we were the first ones there. Meanwhile, Hadia, Daniel, and Ben like to reflect on one special issue of the Argonaut titled Healing in the Dark. It came out about a month after the murders, dedicated to the four victims. I think the way I've heard it most accurately described is the idea that Moscow is trying to heal from this tragedy, but the wound keeps being reopened because of the media attention and just the sensationalization of the trial. Um, I think that's making it hard for the community to move on for sure, but there, there's been a lot of progress. And I do like this photo that John got of uh, the panorama of just the amount of people that were just there. I don't think I've ever seen that many people fill the green or the pitch of the uh, of the Kiwi Dome in, in a long while. They're hoping things get back to normal, whatever that looks like. I think if anything, a lot of people have kind of grown their, their love for Moscow even. The community's kind of been forced to unite and I think that's meant a lot for people who've needed the support.